0: and welcome to let's be better a podcast where we have the hard conversations about politics minority communities and our world at large i'm hannah and today is sunday october 4th of 2020 this week in review we will be covering amy coney barrett trump's tax returns the first presidential debate of 2020 and donald trump's covid 19 diagnosis no question of the week today thank you for joining me Our first story this week is about Donald Trump's nominee for Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett. What's her track record, what does she stand for, and should we be worried? So to start, Amy was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, the oldest of seven siblings. Her father worked as an attorney for Shell Oil, and her mother was a French teacher. She was raised in the suburbs and went to Catholic school growing up. In high school, she was named the class vice president. After graduating high school, Barrett attended Rhodes College in Tennessee. She received her undergrad, a BA in English literature from there, and graduated magna cum laude and was chosen by professors as the outstanding graduate in the college's English department. Following her graduation, Barrett was a clerk for Judge Lawrence Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. After that, she clerked for Supreme Court Associate Justice Anton Scalia. In 1997, Barrett returned to school attending Notre Dame for her grad degree where she graduated summa cum laude. During her attendance, she earned the Hoy News Prize as the top student in her class, was a member of Phi Beta Kappa, and served as the executive director for the Notre Dame Law Review. In 1999, Barrett joined law firm Miller, Cassidy, LaRocca, and Lewin. According to biography.com, As an associate, she litigated constitutional, criminal, and commercial cases, both in trial and appellate courts. Then in 2001, Barrett began her teaching career as the John M. Olin Fellow at Law, a visiting associate professor position at George Washington University Law School. In 2002, Barrett returned to her alma mater, Notre Dame, to be an assistant professor. She would eventually be promoted to a full tenured faculty member. Over her 15 years of teaching at Notre Dame, she won the Distinguished Professor of the Year Award three times and held the Diane and M.O. Miller Research Chair of Law for three years. From Biography.com, Bear also began developing a national profile during these years for her staunch conservative and Catholic beliefs. In 2012, she signed a statement that criticized President Barack Obama's Affordable Care Act mandate that contraceptives be covered by health insurance plans as a grave violation of religious freedom. Three years later, she signed a letter to Catholic bishops that praised the value of human life from conception to natural death and family founded on the indissoluble commitment of a man and a woman. In 2017, Donald Trump nominated her for a seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit, which includes Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. The hearing was a point of contention, with many wondering whether or not her religious beliefs would affect her rulings. She was confirmed in October of 2017 with votes 55 to 43, with Democrats Tim Kaine, Joe Manchin, and Joe Donnelly giving her their support. This next chunk is all from Biography.com as well. During her next three years on the Seventh Circuit bench, Judge Barrett authored approximately 100 opinions that bolstered her reputation as a textualist and originalist in the mold of her mentor, Scalia. Second Amendment rights. In 2019, Cantor v. Barr, Barrett was the lone voice of dissent in a decision that prohibited a man convicted of a white-collar crime from possessing a firearm. Quote, founding legislators did not strip felons of the right to bear arms simply because of their status as felons, she wrote. Immigration. Bear again dissented the following year when Cook County versus Wolfe upheld the blockage of Trump's public charge rule that made it difficult for immigrants relying on public assistance to earn green cards. Describing the administration's stance as not unreasonable, Barrett insisted the courts were not the vehicle for resolving controversial policy disputes. Additionally, the judge has offered her thoughts on key legal and political matters through her writing and speeches. On stare decisis, in a 2013 Law Review article, Barrett declared that she was not beholden to the doctrine of stare decisis, which asks a court to follow the precedents set in similar cases, quote, I tend to agree with those who say that a justice's duty is to the Constitution and that it is thus more legitimate for her to enforce her best understanding of the Constitution rather than a precedent that she thinks clearly in conflict with, she wrote. Abortion. Barrett's view of stare decisis has fueled critics who believe she intends to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion. The pro-life judge has spoken at lengths on the complexity of the topic, from the wisdom of allowing non-elected judicial appointments to decide the issue, to the process of preventing public funding for abortions, though she noted in a 2013 lecture that it was unlikely the landmark ruling would be overturned. Affordable Care Act In a 2017 article, Barrett criticized Chief Justice John Roberts' upholding of the ACA by characterizing the financial penalty imposed on those without health insurance as a tax. Quote, Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute, she wrote. And again, all of that was from biography.com. Her family life is also notable. She married fellow Notre Dame alum and former federal prosecutor Jesse Barrett. Together, they have seven children, two of whom were adopted from Haiti, and one of her children, the youngest, has Down syndrome. Also on a more personal note, Barrett is involved with the Federalist Society, the American Law Institute, and the Notre Dame Anti-Abortion Group Faculty for Life. She and her husband are also reported members of the organization People of Praise, which is a Christian group where members provide a lifelong covenant of loyalty and look to spiritual advisors for personal decisions. And now, as we all know, on September 26th of this year, Donald Trump nominated Barrett to fill the shoes of recently deceased Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The president said that he had two qualifications for what he was looking for in a new justice— One, she must be opposed to Roe v. Wade, and two, she must do whatever she can to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Trump called her a woman of unparalleled achievement, towering intellect, sterling credentials, and unyielding loyalty to the Constitution. According to NPR, months after Trump gave that speech, she dissented an abortion case which would allow abortions based on fetal disability or gender. Had they prevailed, it would have been illegal to receive an abortion in Indiana because of a fetal disability. If she's confirmed, she will be Trump's third Supreme Court nominee, including Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, both staunch conservatives, and she would be the sixth conservative vote on the court from NPR. Barrett closely identifies with the justice she once clerked for the late Anton Scalia, who more than any other justice popularized the idea of originalism, meaning that the court should interpret the Constitution as it was originally intended by the founders. But Scalia at the same time often referred to himself as a faint-hearted originalist because he also embraced one of the other building blocks of legal interpretation, namely adhering to the precedent even when, in his view, some of those precedents conflicted with what the Founding Fathers thought when they ratified the Constitution. In another selection from the same article, "...nobody seriously disputes Barrett's sparkling intellect and qualifications to serve on the Supreme Court. Rather, it is her work on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and her scholarly writing and commentary that have drawn such fervent opposition from the left and support from the right." So that's a breakdown on Amy Coney Barrett. Now time for some opinions. First of all, Trump is just using her as his token woman. He never cared about appointing woman before Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And frankly, I don't really think he cares now. It would just look bad to replace RBG with a man. Secondly, Amy Coney Barrett is the polar opposite of RBG. Instead of fighting for women's freedoms, her track record shows that she literally wants to overturn Roe v. Wade. I will remind everyone that we are a country based on religious freedom, and if she believes that abortion is wrong because of her religion, that is her right, but it is not her right to push that onto other people. It's called pro-choice for a reason. It should be up to each individual to make that incredibly hard decision for themselves. Since she has shown that she can't separate church and state in her practice, I think that she is not a good nominee, and I would say that for anybody. Barrett has a track record of how she rules, which is in favor of her religion, but only on some things. She doesn't rule in favor of Jesus' teachings about helping the poor, as we mentioned above with the Cook County v. Wolf case and her views on the Affordable Care Act. Third, she has shown that she wants to uphold the Constitution above all, which might have been fine with me a few years ago, but now we're all learning about how messy our revolution was and how controversial our founders are. Just since starting this podcast, I've learned so much about how our Constitution was put in place just to suppress slaves and black people. So frankly, I'm hesitant to throw my support behind anyone who blindly follows the will of these rich white men. Also, abortion wasn't in the Constitution. Just saying. In summary, I think that Supreme Court justices should be impartial, nonpartisan, and should work towards the continued progress and equality of all citizens of the United States. I do not believe Amy Coney Barrett is that person. Our next story is about the New York Times article, which released information on Trump's tax records. On September 27th, the New York Times released a scathing article about Donald Trump's taxes. The article states, The New York Times has obtained tax return data extending over more than two decades for Mr. Trump and the hundreds of companies that make up his business organization, including detailed information from his first two years in office. It does not include his personal returns for 2018 or 2019. This article offers an overview of the Times' findings. Additional articles will be published in the coming weeks. It's important to note also that the Times has not said where they got this information from or if they will ever release it. So, you know, take everything with a grain of salt. Donald Trump has claimed that this article is fake news, but he is the first president since Gerald Ford in the 1970s to not release his tax returns to the public. He also says that he will release his tax returns once he's not under audit, but according to the BBC, it is regular practice for sitting presidents to be under audit, which has never prevented a president from releasing their tax returns before, from NPR. When asked about the report during a Sunday evening news conference, Trump refused to detail what he's paid in federal income taxes, saying simply, I've paid a lot. In 2016, when debating with Hillary Clinton, she accused him of not paying federal income taxes, to which he said, that makes me smart. Donald Trump, during the debate, which we'll get more into later, was asked to confirm whether he paid $750 during 2016 and 2017, to which Trump responded, I've paid millions of dollars in taxes. Millions of dollars in income tax. Chris, let me tell you something. I don't want to pay tax like every other private business person. Unless they're stupid, they go through the laws. Alan Garden, a lawyer for the Trump Organization, told the Times that, quote, Most, if not all, the facts appear to be inaccurate, and that over the past decade, President Trump has paid tens of millions of dollars in personal taxes to the federal government including paying millions in personal taxes since the announcing of his candidacy in 2015. Though the Times points out that personal taxes is not the same as income taxes, and that Garden is probably referring to the other federal taxes that have been paid, like Social Security, Medicare, and taxes for his household employees, etc. So let's break down what this article specifically talks about. To start an overview, the report claims that in 2016 and 2017, Donald Trump only paid $750 in federal income taxes, and in 10 of the last 15 years, he has not paid any income taxes. This may be in part due to the fact that he reported losing more money than he made. The article also claims that Trump has been battling the IRS over the legitimacy of a $72.9 million tax refund that he claimed and received After declaring huge losses. An adverse ruling could cost him more than $100 million. And we'll go into detail more about that later. Another section of the article says, Transcripts of his main federal tax form, the 1040, from 1985 to 1994 were obtained by the Times in 2019. They showed that in many years, Mr. Trump lost more money than nearly any other individual American taxpayer. Three pages of his 1995 returns, mailed anonymously to the Times during the 2016 campaign, showed that Mr. Trump had declared losses of $915.7 million, which gave him tax deductions that could have allowed him to avoid federal income taxes for almost two decades. Five months later, the journalist David K. Johnston obtained two pages of Mr. Trump's returns from 2005. That year, his fortunes had rebounded to the point that he was paying taxes. The Times also discusses Trump's connections to Russia in relation with the Miss Universe pageant. They claim that the 2013 pageant, which took place in Moscow, was the most profitable one to date and generated Trump a personal $2.3 million. That was made possible in part due to the Aguilarov family, which was the same family that set up the 2016 meeting between Trump and campaign officials to find dirt on Hillary Clinton. The article also states that Donald Trump's net income as of 2018 totaled $427.4 million, but that he's been able to escape taxes due to using the proceeds of his celebrity to purchase and prop up risky businesses, then wielding their losses to avoid taxes. Remember that quote. We'll talk about it at the end. This is in part due to a loophole in the tax system, which allows business owners to carry leftover losses from year to year in order to reduce taxes, Quote, as the Times' previous reporting on his 1995 return showed, the nearly $1 billion in losses from his early 1990s collapse generated a tax deduction that he could use for up to 18 years going forward. By 2005, the alleged tax returns show that Trump started to make enough money to resume paying taxes, mostly from the success of The Apprentice. From 2005 to 2007, he earned $120 million in profit, to which he paid $70.1 million in income taxes. He would later ask for and receive a refund for all the federal income tax he paid from 2005 to 2008, plus interest, totaling $72.9 million that we mentioned earlier. And then again, we'll come back to this uh, refund in a bit. After receiving the monetary boost from the apprentice, Trump started investing in real estate, purchasing golf clubs and building up the Trump Hotel, though he still wasn't making much profit. The Times claim that since 2000, Mr. Trump has reported losses of 315.6 million dollars at the golf courses and 134 million in regards to the Trump Corporation and 55.5 million in losses from 2016 to 2018 from the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Times argues that Trump's first success remains his best, the Trump Tower. The retail and commercial spaces in the New York City building pump out $20 million a year in profits, which has totaled $336.3 million since 2000. Now remember that $72.9 million refund I mentioned earlier? We're back to that. From the Times. Records show that the result of an audit of Mr. Trump's refund were sent to the Joint Committee in the spring of 2011. An agreement was reached in late 2014, the documents indicate, but the audit resumed and grew to include Mr. Trump's returns for 2010 through 2013. In the spring of 2016, with Mr. Trump closing in on the Republican nomination, the case was sent back to the committee. It has remained there unresolved with the statute of limitations repeatedly pushing forward. Precisely why the case is stalled is not clear, but experts say it suggests that the gap between the sides remains wide. If negotiations were to deadlock, the case would move to federal court, where it could become a matter of public record. The article later says, If the auditors ultimately disallow Mr. Trump's $72.9 million federal refund, he will be forced to return that money with interest and possibly penalties, a total that could exceed $100 million. He could also be ordered to return the state and local refunds based on the same claims. After that, the Times discusses Trump's questionable tax write-offs, This includes $26 million from 2010 to 2018 of unexplained consulting fees. Part of these consulting fees also includes an exact $747,622, claimed as tax deductions by the Trump Organization for hotel projects in Vancouver and Hawaii. However... Ivanka Trump's taxes show that she received that exact same amount in a payment from the consulting company that she co-owns, from the Times article, meaning she appears to have been treated as a consultant on the same hotel deals that she helped manage as part of her job at her father's business. When asked about the arrangement, the Trump organization lawyer, Mr. Garden, did not respond. The article also goes on to say that, a 2011 tax court case centered on the IRS's denial of almost $3 million in deductions for consulting fees the partners in an Illinois accounting firm paid themselves via corporations they created. The court concluded that the partners had structured the fees to distribute profits, not to compensate for services. There is no indication that the IRS has questioned Mr. Trump's practice of deducting millions of dollars in consulting fees. If the payments to his daughter were compensation for work, it's not clear why Mr. Trump would do it in this form other than to reduce his own tax liability. Another more legally perilous possibility is that the fees were a way to transfer assets to his children without incurring a gift tax. In addition to questionable write-offs regarding his children, Trump allegedly wrote off a number of other business expenses, including fuel and food in relation to his aircraft, $70,000 to styling of his hair during The Apprentice, and $94,464 paid to Ivanka's favorite hair and makeup artist. In regards to one of the Trump estates, Seven Springs, a mansion of 50,000 square feet, he wrote off $2.2 2 million in property taxes as a business expense, even though his own 2017 tax law only allows individuals to write off $10,000 a year in property taxes. He was also allowed to skirt this by claiming that Seven Springs was an investment property and not a personal residence. Despite this claim, Eric Trump has said on record that Seven Springs was a home base for us for a long, long time, and the Trump Organization website describes Seven Springs as a retreat for the Trump family. The Trump Organization lawyer also did not respond to comments regarding these write-offs. Two of the deductions, one at Seven Springs and one at the Trump National Golf Club in LA, are also currently being investigated by the New York Attorney General. From the article, another common deductible expense for all businesses is legal fees. The IRS requires that these fees be directly related to operating your business, and businesses cannot deduct legal fees paid to defend charges that arise from participation in a political campaign. Yet, the tax records show that the Trump Corporation wrote off as business expenses fees paid to a criminal defense lawyer, Alan S. Futterfoss, who was hired to represent Donald Trump Jr. during the Russia inquiry. Investigators were examining Don Jr.'s role in the 2016 Trump Tower meeting, with Russians who had promised damaging information on Ms. Clinton. When he testified before Congress in 2017, Mr. Futterfoss was by his side. Mr. Futterfoss was also hired to defend the president's embattled charitable foundation, which would be shut down in 2018 after New York regulators said it had engaged in a shocking pattern of illegality. The Trump Corporation paid Mr. Furterfoss at least $1.9 million in 2017 and 2018, tax records show. Also written off was at least $259,684 paid to Williams and Jensen, another firm brought in during the same period to represent Donald Trump Jr. The last thing that the article mentions is that Donald Trump has personally backed hundreds of million dollars in loans. He is responsible for loans and other debts, which total $421 million. Much of it will be coming due within these next four years. The article discusses that if he wins re-election, that his lenders could be placed in the unprecedented position of weighing whether or not to foreclose on a sitting president. But like mentioned earlier, Trump could in theory take on this debt and then declare the $421 million as losses in the future. And so that was the summary of the New York Times article about Trump's taxes. So now on to a bit of opinion. Like with any type of whistleblower claim or exposed information, one can always say that it's not true without being provided the sources. Personally, after reading the entire article, which is about 10,600 words, I would be surprised if they didn't have the tax returns they are claiming. Do people really think that these three reporters would jeopardize their jobs just to make up things about the president? What would they have to gain? Plus, there are so many specific claims in the article that have not been brought up by the media before, and specific numbers, like the one that we mentioned earlier about Ivanka Trump being paid the exact same amount as what was in Donald Trump's tax returns. Also, it seems like the article is saying that Trump did most of this legally, which begs the bigger question. How can someone who has so many losses continue to tout themselves as a great businessman? And how can someone who is worth over $400 million get away without paying any income taxes and continue to stay afloat? I guess coming from old money and having an endless supply of cash will do that for you. There are so many numbers in this article that I can't fully even comprehend. How anyone can pity the finances of someone that wealthy is beyond me. It's just privilege. Once again, it just goes to show the evils of capitalism. If Donald Trump can rebound from all of these losses, how can we possibly expect him to have any empathy for the poor people in this country? I'm sure his mentality is, if I can do it, so can you. People love him because he's a good businessman, but the truth is that he's not. He's good at wielding the tax system to his advantage, so that way he never has to go under. I'm honestly just baffled that someone can play victim this many times over. How is he allowed to continue to open businesses? And I'm sure that there are hundreds, if not thousands of employees who have been laid off so he can save his own ass and just do this over and over again. Hearing rich, white, old money men talk about the economy or helping the poor or complaining about taxes going towards helpful things like healthcare and education is infuriating. If anything, this article is proof that Donald Trump can never and will never understand what it's like to be a middle-class American citizen and will never understand the struggles that most of us face. He is not president to help us and make our lives better. He is president because it's just the next rung in his ladder. He's doing to the country what he has done to all businesses. Remember that quote from earlier? Using the proceeds of his celebrity to purchase and prop up risky businesses, then wielding their losses to avoid taxes. That's what he's doing right now. He's constantly inherits something good and strong and then burns it to the ground, leaves, and takes all of his tax credits and any positive praise with him. This next story seems ages away, but I wanted to briefly talk about the first presidential debate of 2020. So, we all watched it. I don't really want to take the time to recap it because there was so much to unpack, and it's just not worth it. And there are plenty of other places that I think could do it far better than I could, So I just posted on Facebook and asked my friends what they thought I should talk about in regards to the debate. I think that that would be most beneficial, just having a discussion about what the heck happened and what we think of it. Jennifer says, I think the debate styles would be an interesting take, like how Trump continually interrupted and spoke over Biden while Biden was directly talking to the American people. Which debate styles do you think would be more beneficial, and how do do you think each one had an impact on how information was portrayed? First of all, thanks for your response, Jen. Another similar question I've seen floating around is how did each candidate prepare for the debate, if at all? According to USA Today, Biden gathered with his senior advisors in Wilmington, Delaware, his home base, to try and predict Trump's moves. He prepared with Bob Bauer, a senior Biden advisor and former White House general counsel, Rob Klain, a debate coach for the Democratic Party and former vice president chief of staff, and chief strategist Mike Donilon and senior advisor Anita Dunn. I also think all viewers could tell that Biden was coached on what to do. He, like Jennifer said, deliberately looked at the camera and talked straight to the American people, which I haven't seen him do before. Personally, I think that it was a strong, impactful choice, and I think that most other viewers thought that as well. On the other hand, Donald Trump practiced with former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Tim Murdoch, communications director for the Trump campaign, told USA Today, He gets challenging, hostile questions routinely. Being president is debate prep. Trump has also told reporters, you know, what I do is debate prep every day. I'm taking questions from you people all the time. When he was asked specifically how long he'd been prepping, Trump responded, well, I don't know. I mean, a little time. I mean, not a lot. I'm running a country. I think the debate definitely reflected that. Trump stuck with his go-to routine, which is just say whatever comes to his head to talk over people, and to avoid answering questions about himself and to spin it negatively towards Democrats. A good example of this was the following interaction from the debate. Wallace, you in the course of these four years have never come up with a comprehensive plan to replace Obamacare. And just this last Thursday, you signed a largely symbolic order to protect people with pre-existing conditions five days before this debate. So my question, sir, is what is the Trump healthcare plan? Trump. Well, first of all, I guess I'm debating you, not him, but that's okay. I'm not surprised. Let me just tell you something. That has nothing symbolic. I'm cutting drug prices. I'm going with favored nations, which no president has encouraged to do because you're going against big pharma. Drug prices will be coming down 80 or 90 percent. You could have done it during your 47-year period in government, but you didn't do it. Nobody's done it. So we're cutting health care. All of the things that we've done, insulin, I'll give you an example, insulin, it's going to, it was destroying families, destroyed people, the cost. I'm getting it for so cheap, it's like water. You want to know the truth? So cheap. Take a look at the drugs that... What we are doing, prescription drug prices, we're going to allow our governors now to go to other countries to buy drugs because when they just make a tiny fraction, this is big stuff. Biden also did plenty of deflecting, most notably when asked, are you willing to tell the American people tonight whether or not you will support either ending the filibuster or packing the courts? Biden responded, whatever position I take on that, that'll become the issue. The issue is, the American people should speak. You should go out and vote. We are in voting now. Vote and let your senators know how strongly you feel. Vote now. In fact, let people know. It is your senators. I'm not going to answer the question. Personally, I would have loved for him to answer the question, but guess not. So to Jennifer's point, which was more effective? Personally, I think that Joe Biden had the more respectable and presidential approach, though... As much as I love to hear him tell Trump, would you just shut up, man? I also would have appreciated him taking the high road and not stooping to Trump's level of name calling. And though Biden seemed more prepared and well put together, I still really didn't get an informed look at any of his policies and views. In part because Trump wouldn't let him get a word in, but when he did, he spent most of that time talking about how bad Trump is and not his own policies. This leads me to the effectiveness of Trump's strategy. Since the majority of voters are already decided, I don't know how much Trump was looking to sway those people. What would benefit him more would be to bolster his current support. His not-politician appeal definitely came out in this debate, and unfortunately, I think plenty of people appreciated it. His refusal to let Biden or the moderator talk was extremely controlling, which is good for Trump. By not allowing his opponents to critique him, he was able to run the show and talk about whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Trump's supporters like him for his F.U. attitude, and that's exactly what he gave. On to the next suggestion. Chris said, Maybe going over a proper debate etiquette and discussing where both candidates went wrong. There was such little content. Talk about what we should be seeing when a presidential debate occurs. Thanks for your response, Chris. From an article on SchoolWorkHelper.net about debate structure and etiquette, Introductions should precede the debate. The debater should not offer emotional appeals. He or she should concentrate on the evidence. The debater should not falsify, create, or distort evidence. The debater should never publicly disagree with the decision of the judge or the audience. Winners need to be congratulated by the opposition. Debaters should not insult, offend, or disrespect other debaters and or judges in any way. Debaters should not speak out of turn or interrupt an opponent. Debaters should avoid swaying, shuffling, and pacing. Now, of course, every debate is different, and rules for debates can be different, too. Something else that I've noticed recently is a lack of respect when talking to opponents on both sides— You know, officially, Donald Trump is President Trump, right? So I feel like Biden should have been referring to him more often as President Trump. And then the same thing goes for Trump. Instead of calling Joe Biden Joe, he should have probably said former Vice President Joe Biden. That would have been more uh, official and I think proper etiquette there. The rules for this specific debate were set by moderator Chris Wallace. He envisioned six 15-minute sessions where each candidate would have two minutes uninterrupted to say their point. Then the floor would be open for discussion. Though interruptions are not new in a debate setting, I think most of us can agree that this debate was unprecedented. Chris Wallace repeatedly had to ask Donald Trump to follow the rules that he and his party agreed to and he also did have to ask Biden to stop interrupting a few times as well. This has raised the question of what the next debate will look like since rules weren't followed. Another rule that we're just now learning about was the fact that all members of the audience and participants were supposed to be tested for COVID-19, and they were supposed to wear masks while in attendance, except for Trump, Biden, and Wallace. Trump's family who attended took off their masks once inside and even rejected masks that were offered to them by staffers at the event. Chris Wallace also talked on Fox News about how the Trump campaign didn't arrive in time to be tested before the debate, so there was an honor code regarding their personal COVID testing. Furthermore, and we'll get more into depth about this later, the Trump campaign knew that they had been exposed to somebody who was exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19, before the debate, and didn't tell anyone ahead of time. Jennifer also asked, One questionable thing I noticed from the debate was Biden's stance on climate change slash the Green New Deal. I could stand to have a more elaborate explanation on his opinions on that. I 100% agree, Jen. I was not aware that Biden had his own climate plan, and unfortunately didn't get any information on it from the debate. So let's do some digging. First, I'll start with what the Green New Deal is, then we'll talk about the Biden plan. From the New York Times, the Green New Deal is a congressional resolution that lays out a ground plan for tackling climate change. Introduced by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Senator Edward J. Markey of Massachusetts, both Democrats, the proposal calls on the federal government to wean the United States away from fossil fuels and to curb planet-warming greenhouse gas emissions across the economy. It also aims to guarantee new, high-paying jobs in clean energy industries. The goal of the Green New Deal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in order to avoid the worst consequences of climate change, while also trying to fix societal problems like economic inequality and racial injustice. The resolution uses as its guide two major reports issued last year by the United Nations and by federal scientists, who warned that if global temperatures continue to rise, the world is headed for more intense heat waves, wildfires, and droughts. Supporters of the Green New Deal also believe that change can't just be a technological feat and says that it must also tackle poverty, income inequality, and racial discrimination. It says that the entire world needs to get to net zero emissions by 2050, meaning as much carbon would have to be absorbed as released into the atmosphere, and that the United States must take a leading role in achieving that. The Green New Deal calls on the federal government to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions, create high-paying jobs, ensure that clean air, clean water, and healthy food are basic human rights, and end all forms of oppression. To achieve these goals, the plan calls for a launch of a 10-year mobilization, To reduce carbon emissions in the United States, it envisions sourcing 100% of the country's electricity from renewable and zero-emissions power, digitizing the nation's power grid, upgrading every building in the country to be more energy-efficient, and overhauling the nation's transportation system by investing in electric vehicles and high-speed rail. To address social justice, the resolution says it's the duty of the government to provide job training and a new economic development particularly to communities that rely on jobs in fossil fuel industries. Again, all of that was from the New York Times. Now, on to the Biden plan. Funnily enough, despite him saying he doesn't support the Green New Deal during the debate, his website says the following, Biden believes the Green New Deal is a crucial framework for meeting the climate changes we face. It powerfully captures two basic truths, which are at the core of his plan. One, the United States urgently needs to embrace greater ambition on an epic scale to meet the scope of this challenge. And two, our environment and our economy are completely and totally connected. It doesn't really sound like he is uh, not in support of the Green New Deal here. The Biden plan also includes demanding that Congress enact legislation in the first year of his presidency that one, establishes an enforcement mechanism that includes milestone targets no later than the end of his first term in 2025. Two, makes a historic investment in clean energy and climate research and innovation. Three, incentivizes the rapid deployment of clean energy innovations across the economy, especially in communities most impacted by climate change. His next point says, On day one, Biden will make smart infrastructure investments to rebuild the nation and to ensure that our buildings, water, transportation, and energy infrastructure can withstand the impacts of climate change. Every dollar spent towards rebuilding our roads, bridges, buildings, the electric grid, and our water infrastructure will be used to prevent, reduce, and withstand a changing climate. He also says he will stand up to the abuse of power by polluters who disproportionately harm communities of color and in low-income communities and will fulfill our obligation to workers and communities who powered our industrial revolution and subsequent decades of economic growth. The Biden plan also calls for a historic investment in our clean energy future and environmental justice, paid for by rolling back the Trump tax incentives that enrich corporations at the expense of American jobs and the environment. Biden's climate and environmental justice proposal will make federal investment of $1.7 trillion over the next 10 years, leveraging additional private sector and state and local investments to total more than $5 trillion. President Trump's tax cut led to trillions in stock buybacks and created new incentives to shift profits abroad. Joe Biden believes we should instead invest in a clean energy resolution that creates jobs here at home. Maybe I'm not looking into this enough, but it sounds a lot like the Green New Deal. And after doing research, I don't really see any differences. I think that Biden is probably scared of the far left, more socialist agendas, and is probably just saying he's against the Green New Deal so as not to scare his moderate supporters. Personally, I would love to see a more specific plan in place. I think that last section about how rolling back tax cuts would fund his plan is the only thing of substance he is going for him. This is something that I dislike about typical politician talk. The idea of talking about broad plans and ideas without specifics. Something that I appreciated about Bernie was that he did the opposite. When asked what he would do about something, he would say, this is the issue, this is what we're going to do to stop it, this is how we'll pay for it, and this will be the end result. I would love to see that sort of mentality in politics in the future and from Joe Biden himself. Next, Amber mentioned... Neither candidate made mention of their plans to address the $1.5 trillion in student debt. Trump, as far as I know, has no plan. Biden has mentioned plans, but we all know talk is cheap. Erasing the debt would stimulate the economy when it needs it the most and show compassion for a generation that will be most affected by this election. Thanks for your response, Amber. I mean, yeah. Especially now during COVID, when everyone is struggling financially, this is a big issue for many Americans. According to a Forbes.com article from 2018, the average of all four-year institutions comes out to $26,120 per year. This brings the total cost of attendance to an astronomical total of $104,480 over four years. The comparable cost for the same four-year degree in 1989 was $26,902, or 52892 adjusted for inflation. This means that between the academic years ending in 1989 and 2016, the cost of a four-year degree doubled, even after inflation. Over that period, the average annual growth rate for the cost to attend a four- Hi. This means that between academic years ending in 1989 and 2016, the cost for a four-year degree doubled, even after inflation. Over that period, the average annual growth rate for the cost to attend a four-year university was 2.6% per year. They also point out that the average annual growth in wages between January of 1989 and January of 2016 was only 0.3%. So essentially, even though the cost of college has doubled, wages have not budged almost at all. Another thing that I want to point out is that America is way behind other countries on college education. Many nations already have free or nearly free tuition for their citizens, including... Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Czech Republic, Denmark, Egypt, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Iceland, Kenya, Luxembourg, Malaysia, Morocco, Norway, Panama, Poland, Scotland, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden, Turkey, and Uruguay. Especially since young people are a big part of the current Democratic Party, I'm surprised that Biden hasn't mentioned anything about education since Bernie left the race. And as we all know, free college was one of Bernie's big talking points. And that's pretty disappointing in my opinion. We also all know how Trump views public education, made clear by his appointment of Betsy DeVos, who has never attended a public school in her life. All in all, the debate was concerning in numerous ways. Let's hope that the next setup is better for controlling interjections and more beneficial for Americans. And the last story of this week is that coronavirus has breached the White House, Trump tweeted on October 1st, around 1 a.m., that he and the First Lady had tested positive for COVID-19. He was originally planning on quarantining in the White House, but was soon moved to Walter Reed Hospital. And as if that wasn't shocking enough, we're now watching the virus spread across the entire White House. Before Trump announced, before Trump announced his positive result, Hope Hicks, Trump's senior aide, began exhibiting symptoms on Wednesday. According to the New York Times, officials at the White House have known about Mrs. Hicks' likely diagnosis since Wednesday evening when she traveled with the president aboard Air Force One to Minnesota for a campaign rally in Duluth. One person familiar with the events on Wednesday said that Ms. Hicks began exhibiting minor symptoms around the time of Mr. Trump's rally and that she was quarantined on the return flight to Washington and then disembarked from the back entrance of the plane. This brings up the question about how the West Wing has been handling the pandemic. Notably, most staffers don't wear masks or social distance when they're working, partly because they claim that they're constantly taking COVID tests, but clearly testing has fallen to the wayside if this many people were allowed to be infected. After both Hicks and Trump announced their positive results, even more came flooding in, this time from the Rose Garden, now called super-spreading, event that was held for the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Though the event was outside, there was no social distancing, and very few attendants wore masks. Many attendees kissed cheeks, hugged, and stood very close to one another. So far, at least nine people who attended the event have tested positive, Most notably, Trump's former senior advisor, Kellyanne Conway. There are some interesting photos showing where she was seated and where other people who tested positive were seated. And believe it or not, most of the people who tested positive were sitting near each other. It's also worth noting that Conway did not publicly announce that she was positive until after her daughter posted about it online. This begs the question about the transparency of the president's constituents and himself. The current Rose Garden attendees who have currently tested positive are Mike Lee, a Republican senator from Utah, Tom Tillis, a Republican senator from North Carolina, Ron Johnson, a Republican senator from Wisconsin, Notre Dame president Father John Jenkins, a White House journalist, Chris Christie, who if you remember from the last story helped Trump prepare for the debate, and of course Kellyanne Conway, Donald, and Melania Trump. Some other folks who did not attend the event but were recently diagnosed this week include Bill Stipen, Trump's campaign manager, Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, and like we mentioned, Hope Hicks. So now that we've seen this wave of virus take a hold of the White House, what was Trump doing all this week while he was likely contagious? According to Reuters, on September 25th, Trump and Pence arrived at the campaign rally in Newport News, Virginia, which had over 4,000 people in attendance. On the 26th, Trump hosted the Rose Garden event. On the 27th, Trump went golfing at the Trump National Golf Club in Sterling, Virginia, and spoke to reporters during a news conference at the White House. Later that evening, the president attended a rally in Middleton, Pennsylvania, which had around another 4,000 attendees. On the 28th, the president inspected the Lordstown Motor 2021 electric pickup truck at the White House. On the 29th, the first presidential debate of the year took place. This is also the day that Hope Hicks allegedly first started exhibiting symptoms, though some people say it was earlier. On the 30th, Hope Hicks flies on Air Force One, with an assistant, Nicholas Luna, with Trump's son-in-law and advisor, Jared Kushner, and the social media director, Dan Scavino. Also on the 30th, Trump held another rally in Duluth, Minnesota, which had about 3,000 people in attendance. The president threw a hat into the crowd on this day as well, so if you caught it, you might want to get tested. And then on October 1st, he returned to the White House, now positive with coronavirus. I just want to take a brief second to point something out. Though we all know it's irresponsible for anyone not to wear a mask, the fact that so many of our government officials are not taking proper precautions is alarming. We all know how quickly this virus can spread and that it spreads to multiple people from one asymptomatic person. It's one thing for the president to be sick, it's another for our entire government and staff to be sick. I hadn't really thought about it until this point, but... We have tons of fail-safes in place to what would happen if the president is incapacitated, but we don't for all of these other officials. It's a huge danger to our domestic security. The fact that this was able to spread so rapidly to Trump's cabinet is incredibly concerning. Not only because of, you know, their health and well-being, but also because what are we supposed to do if the entire White House gets covid Hopefully we won't get to that point, but I think there's a lot of luck involved with Mike Pence and anyone else who attended these events or even interacted with the president in the last week receiving negative test results. So now that we know what happened, how is the president doing? Unfortunately, this is up for debate. Saturday morning, Trump's doctors at Walter Reed gave an update on the president's conditions, but a few things that were mentioned were reason for concern. Just a few minutes into the update, Trump's doctor, Sean P. Connolly, stated that Trump is 72 hours into the diagnosis. This would imply that Trump did not test positive on October 1st, as publicly announced, but rather on the 30th, the day of the debate. Some people have speculated that this is the reason the Trump team showed up late to the debate, to avoid testing. Dr. Connolly backtracks on the statement later, saying that Trump's positive test was received on Thursday. He said, quote, Thursday afternoon, following the news of a close contact is when we repeated testing, but also repeated when was the first one. Dr. Connolly goes on to say that on Thursday, Trump had a minor cough, nasal congestion, and fatigue, but that he's now doing better, and that he had a fever on Thursday and Friday, but since Friday morning, did not have one currently. A different doctor on the Walter Reed team discussed that the president had started a treatment called remdesivir. According to ScienceMag.org, remdesivir is a combination of two antibodies directed against a key protein of the virus that caused COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2. Furthermore, the article states experiments in both golden hamsters and rhesus macaw monkeys that intentionally were infected with SARS-CoV-2 showed that the cocktail could reduce viral levels and disease pathology. Regeneron, the maker of the cocktail, earlier this week presented preliminary data from its ongoing clinical trial in people who tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 but were asymptomatic or in most more extreme cases had a moderate disease, a group that would appear to mirror Trump's current condition. No serious safety concerns surfaced, and the treatment reduced viral load and shortened symptomatic disease in patients who did not have SARS-CoV-2 antibodies at the trial start. Once Dr. Connolly opened up the floor for questions, another interesting thing happened. A reporter asked if the president was currently needing supplemental oxygen and if he had used any thus far, to which the doctor responded that Trump has not needed any this morning today at all. The Times reports that shortly after the upbeat briefing by the doctors, a person familiar with the president's health gave a far more sober assessment to the reporters at Walter Reed on the condition of anonymity. The president's vitals over the last 24 hours were very concerning, and the next 48 hours will be critical in terms of his care, this person said. We are still not on a clear path to full recovery. Two people close to the White House said in separate interviews with the New York Times that the president has had trouble breathing on Friday and that his oxygen level dropped, prompting his doctors to give him supplemental oxygen while at the White House and decided then to transfer him to Walter Reed, where he could be monitored with better equipment and treated more rapidly in case of trouble. The Associated Press also corroborated this story. When asked why Trump was moved to the hospital, Dr. Connolly says because he's the president of the United States and that the first lady has not been moved to the hospital because she has no need for hospitalization. This implies that Donald Trump is in need of hospitalization, so it's probably more serious than he's saying. So now on to some opinions. Overall, I don't have that many hot takes on this, other than the one I mentioned earlier about how this is terrible because it could shut down an alarming chunk of our government. I, like many others, don't wish COVID on anyone, despite how despicably Trump has handled the pandemic in the past. His lack of empathy for those infected has been sobering, and I hope that he now has a better idea of what 7.4 million Americans have gone through. My friend Anastasia put it well on Facebook. She said, they gave this man a whole floor of the hospital. My tax money is paying his hospital bills where while he has not paid taxes in 10 years, he is getting cutting edge technology all for free while hard working Americans leave those overcrowded hospitals with $500,000 in medical fees and permanent lung damage. Oh, how I wish they would stuff him into a communal hospital room so he could get the true American COVID experience. Well said. I'm also worried that he'll have a mild bout, or claim that he had a mild bout, recover fine, and then use this as one more reason to dismiss the virus's severity. But we'll just have to see. Earlier on Saturday, he called it a plague on Twitter, so I guess maybe that's a step forward. So, scheduling-wise, I don't know if anybody can know how this will play out. The president did have multiple rallies planned this week, and the next debate was set for October 15th, which is less than two weeks away. We'll just have to see what happens, if they decide to go virtual, if it's canceled. It's all up in the air. All in all, everyone please stay safe and wear a mask over your nose. And a side note for my Pensacola peeps. The UWF and Pensacola Public's COVID testing centers have now been shut down permanently due to lower numbers of testing. You can still be tested for free at the Florida Health Department downtown Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. No pre-screening, appointment, or physician's order is required. A list of all testing centers in Escambia County will be in the description. And that was this week in review. As always, you can find all of the sources for this episode in the description below. If you have any future episode suggestions or just want to stay updated, you can follow me at facebook.com letsbebetterpod or on Instagram at letsbebetterpod or you can email me at letsbebetterpod at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars. It really helps me out. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next week.